Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Those of you who were here last week know that we began looking at the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and uh, we looked at Jesus' outline of the book in terms of how it develops in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, as he promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, as he would come and clothe his witnesses with power. Verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And of course, Jesus then ascends to heaven after giving his disciples those instructions and that really foretelling of what was going to take place. We considered the actors in Acts, not only the risen Christ and not only in the first chapter, but throughout the book. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit, who is sent then on the day of Pentecost and is active within uh, the life of the church, leading, guiding the witness to different places, sometimes very specifically, as we saw in Acts chapter 16. And the people that he is speaking to in verse 8, the apostles, and we would say not just the apostles are actors, but all of the church, those who are serving the Lord, who came to a knowledge of the risen Christ through their testimony. They were not witnesses to his uh, resurrected body. They did not see him, but they believed the witness of those disciples, the apostles, and they became believers themselves. There are Many thousands upon thousands in the book of Acts who came to Christ. I think if you were to try to trace just the number of conversions, the number of people who came to Christ, it would be astounding. Uh, the day of Pentecost, but then following 3,000, 5,000, and then beyond that, there's those who came to Christ, the many priests who came to Christ, and then uh, within uh, a short time as the witness spreads, it goes to other places. And then, of course, we have all these letters in our New Testament that are written to either cities or in the case of Galatians, the book that we're reading, it's a region filled with Christians, filled with churches. As far as the actors in the book of Acts, you could also see that there were those who opposed the progress of the gospel those who persecuted those who were preaching the gospel. Certainly the devil would oppose that, but beyond that, the human beings, the individuals who opposed it, both uh, there at Jerusalem initially, but then as the gospel spread in different places, wherever the gospel went and was proclaimed, there was opposition. And there's one more actor I want to just give attention to. I mentioned some names, and as we go through the book, we will see the names of individual Christians who, not apostles, uh, not officers in the church, not officials, but those who served in some way. And I've mentioned a few of them. There are many names, many individuals. But there's an unnamed individual 
who uh, we're going to give some attention to as we read through this book because he's the author, the human author. And that is the beloved physician, as he is called, Luke. Uh, Luke, as you read through the beginning of his gospel, refers to Theophilus, as you see in verse 1 of Acts chapter 1 here, the first account, I composed Theophilus. It's that I that is in question. Who's the I? He's not identified by name in his gospel, nor is he identified by name here in the book of Acts, but he does enter the book of Acts, not just in terms of his writing, but also his presence. If you want to turn over to chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, it's not just the I, it's also the we. And by we, I mean that he at times is speaking in that first person plural, having joined the Apostle Paul. And there are a number of these passages where it begins with uh, a description of what's taking place with the Apostle Paul, but at some point, the writer begins to refer to the group in terms of we, as he has joined uh, the group. We looked at this briefly last week. Verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. The man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And not only is he saying we and us, but he's also including himself as one of the preachers of the gospel. Someone who is, as Paul calls him in another place in one of his letters, a fellow worker. And he does say that in Philemon, that Luke was a fellow worker, that at some point Luke had come to Christ he had been discipled and then joined this apostle along with Timothy, Silas in this case, and he is going along to preach the gospel to those there in Macedonia. And Luke doesn't usually mention, uh, he doesn't mention his presence except for that we, and you can tell where he is and sometimes where he's not based upon the fact that that is not a part of the narrative. Apparently, if you were to look through the details, even of this book, uh, there are some hints that Luke was from Antioch in Syria. He is a Gentile, likely the only Gentile author of scripture, writing the gospel of Luke, also this book, the book of Acts. Antioch could have been the place of his conversion. And surprisingly, if you think about Luke's writing and look at the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, he actually wrote the most of any New Testament writer. If you were to say, who wrote the New Testament? Who wrote most of the New Testament? You'd probably say the Apostle Paul. Well, in terms of books, yes. But in terms of material, if you and you can find word counts online. I did not count exactly every single word, but based on the word count, there's significant number of more words in Luke's writings than Paul's. So we have a prolific gospel preaching, loyal companion of the Apostle Paul. He's here in Acts 16. 
You could find them as well in Acts chapter 20 and then also in Acts chapter 27 through the end of the chapter. Acts 27 and 28 is a shipwreck. So when Luke wrote this, he may have had some notes and they may have been fixed in his mind. Maybe he sent them in a parcel to Rome, but there's a shipwreck that Luke has to get through to finally write this book. We don't exactly know when he wrote uh, in terms of timing. He doesn't say at the beginning or throughout exactly when this was written. Uh, if it followed, uh, you know, if the full writing followed the shipwreck, that would make sense because it'd be hard to imagine Luke striving to keep his manuscripts of his gospel, or maybe it was just the book of Acts as the ship is going down, breaking into pieces. But more likely, he wrote this at Rome. At Rome, where he was, if you look at chapter 28, let's turn there to the very end of the book. He is with Paul. Verse 11, chapter 28 says, at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship. This is after the shipwreck. And then Paul and Luke enter into Rome, verse 16. When we entered into or entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And so there is Paul under house arrest. And the way that Luke ends this book is Paul is there. He has interacted with the Jews. He's there for two years, according to verse 30. It says, and he, that is Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming to all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. And so as Luke writes this book, the very end of the book, at least, what does he detail? He details the growth, the expansion of the gospel witness through the world to the point where the Apostle Paul is there in what you might say is the capital of the world, Rome itself, freely teaching, freely preaching the gospel. And uh, while Luke, if he was a free man, not in prison like the Apostle Paul, perhaps went there, uh, came and went and was with him. We do know, based on 2 Timothy 4.11, at the end of Paul's life, that he says, only Luke is with me. And so he's the frequent companion of the Apostle Paul. We don't always see his comings and goings. He really is a, a physician. The word that's used describes someone who in that culture would have been a physician. One author as he looked at Luke and Acts, he ended up writing uh, a work called The Medical Language of St. Luke. And in that, he argued that Luke is using terms that were typical of someone who's a physician during that time. One writer said, though, that Luke did not parade his medical learning before his readers. What he did was to write with more exactness about diseases and medical matters. And only in a quiet way does Luke betray himself as a physician. So if you read through and see his description, for instance, of miracles in the book of, in the gospel of Luke, or his description of miracles in the book of Acts, you may see uh, more precision, or in some cases, different language than the other uh, gospel writers. So whereas uh, 
in the Matthew and Mark would use one word for a needle. Luke was familiar with other kinds of needles that he would have used in his profession. And there actually is a different term that he used. So here's one of the actors. Uh, we would, as we understand the inspiration of scripture, this is someone who, as he took his pen, as he wrote out the sacred history, the history of the early church, he provided uh, for the church a valuable, wonderful record of what God had done. And of course, as he's in, directed by the Holy Spirit, this is inspired history. This is the record of what God has done and the record of the witness as it spread. We looked at the individuals. We got into some of the passages, but I want to just consider that particular activity of witnessing. If you turn back to Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to draw attention to a couple of things here in Acts chapter 1. Jesus, of course, uses that term in his statement there in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. That is, witnesses who belong to him, commissioned by him, but as far as their subject matter, they're also witnesses to him. They're speaking about him. They're testifying about him is another term that we could use. And uh, there were those who were there in that company, of course, with all of the disciples who had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry from the time that he called them, either as disciples or some of whom he named apostles. There's all of these believers in Jesus who are with him, and he selects some of them uniquely to be witnesses, uniquely to give testimony concerning the resurrection. Uh, as you see this chapter unfold, Peter is preaching and he is saying to the crowd of Christians and he's drawing attention to the fact that there needs to be a replacement for Judas. He argues for that according to Old Testament teaching in verse 21 of chapter 1. He says, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Okay, sometimes you think about this decision that the church is making and you think, well, they just cast lots of prey. That's actually not accurate. Peter is giving qualifications. Before they ever set to before the people, they give these qualifications. The qualifications were necessary to select a group, and then within that group, two. And what is the qualification? That person who is going to replace Judas, again, verse 21, had to have accompanied them all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, was familiar with the teaching of Jesus, knew and saw Jesus face-to-face, -face, heard his teaching, and then also, obviously, 
uh, and, and he even specifies the time that had to be from the baptism of John, that is when Jesus was baptized, all the, all the, day, all the way until he was uh, ascended into heaven. And they also had to be, verse 22, a witness with them of the resurrected Christ. These are individuals. There's a big group of people who had seen the resurrected Christ, but this person had to have that longevity of being with them for that significant period of time, knew the person, the teaching of Jesus, or knew that he'd been crucified, but then also saw him after he had risen from the dead. And then the day that he's taken up. And according to the passage, Joseph and Matthias both fit that. Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, probably explanation there because of his name. Maybe it was a familiar name or a common name. Others were also called that name. So that singles him out and then Matthias. And then they pray. And as they pray, this is one of the actions of the risen Christ in verse 24, after they, uh, they, they begin to pray and they say, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. Who is the Lord that they're speaking of? Well, the Lord in the book of Acts is oftentimes a reference to Christ himself. It's the risen Lord Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it does stand to reason, in addition to that, that they're talking about the 12th apostle. Who chose the first? Well, including Judas. Well, this is the replacement for Judas. Who chooses that 12th apostle well it's the risen lord and it's the risen lord who knows the hearts of all men and he's already chosen one to occupy this notice what it says verse 25 this ministry and apostleship from which judas turned aside to go to his own place and so it's those individuals those 12 who are officially the witnesses of the risen christ in the church leading the church and certainly leading in the verbal public ministry of the church. The apostles are mentioned in Ephesians as foundational to the church. So the ones who are leading the church there uh, in terms of its preaching in Jerusalem. The apostles are witnesses. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 10. Peter explains this a little bit more. As he's preaching to the household of Cornelius, who's a centurion, lives in Caesarea, city on the coast. Gentile household. He preaches to them in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, opening his mouth. Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Notice verse 39. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, that he appear, verse 41, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Now he goes on, but one of the points that Peter is making there is that he really is risen, not just in a spiritual appearance, not just an appearance of his spirit, but in his body. That's why he says that he, we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And that was how Jesus, of course, proved that he had risen from the dead. And verse 42, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify. That's the idea of witnessing that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Now, if you think about verse 42, not only then are they testifying to what they have seen, not only are they giving witness to what they themselves have seen, the ministry, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, his resurrection, but they're also giving testimony to what Jesus is as the judge of all men. That's a part of their testimony. They're testifying to, we could simplify and say, the gospel message. The gospel message that declares to men that they are, and women, that they are, they are sinners, that they are in need of a savior, that they must confess Jesus Christ as Lord, turn from their sins, receive forgiveness. But if not, if someone refuses to believe that message, to refuse to confess that Jesus is Lord, this is also part of the gospel message that this is the one. The same one has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. The gospel message is that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, by his work on the cross, of course, provides forgiveness of sins for all who believe. But there's that warning as well in the gospel. The warning that Jesus, the same Jesus, is the judge of the living and the dead. And then Peter closes his message there with a statement, verse 43, of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, what's interesting about this word witness. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? When what happens here in Acts chapter 10 happens, that people do believe, that they do turn from their sins, that they trust in Christ, that they are saved and forgiven and the Holy Spirit comes. That's what happens here in verse 44. The Holy Spirit falls on those who are listening and the gift of the Holy Spirit was evident because these people started speaking in tongues and exalting God. There was evidence to this Gentile household that God's work was not limited to the Jews, but now has expanded to the Gentiles in an official way. God is doing this. It's a wonderful thing when salvation comes to a household. It's a wonderful thing when people turn and believe in Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven. But there's also the reality of that opposition. The opposition to the witness. It doesn't always happen like this. And as we read through the book of Acts, of course, we see the opposition sometimes to the witnesses 
puts them in a jail cell and has them beheaded. These same witnesses, these 12 apostles, all suffered persecution. Only one of them escaped execution, as far as we know. The word witness is the word from which we get our word martyr. And these who testified to Christ, proclaimed the gospel, proclaimed his lordship, met with those who opposed the gospel, and through the opposition, there were times, and again, for all of them but one, they were executed. Philip, according to John Fox's Book of Martyrs, labored diligently in Upper Asia, suffered martyrdom at Heliopolis in Phrygia. He was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards crucified. Matthew, the scene of his labors, John Fox says, was Parthia, an Ethiopian, which latter country suffered martyrdom, being slain with a halberd in the city of Nadaba in AD 60. Matthias, of whom less is known than most of the other apostles, he says, was elected to fill the vacant place of Judas. He was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Andrew was the brother of Peter. He preached the gospel to many Asiatic nations, but on his arrival at Edessa, he was taken and crucified on a cross, the two ends of which were fixed transversely in the ground, hence the derivation of the term St. Andrew's cross. Judas, the brother of James, was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified. Thomas was martyred by being thrust through with a spear. Simon the Zealot preached the gospel in Mauritania, Africa, even Britain, in which latter country he was crucified in A.D. 74. Peter, as he went to Rome, according to John Fox, was taken by the authorities. He quotes Jerome as saying that when he was crucified, he asked to be crucified with his head being down and his feet upward, himself so requiring because he said he was unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. John is the only one who escaped execution, although it is said that he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil, escaped by miracle. But we know, according to the book of Revelation, that he was in the Isle of Patmos. What was he doing there? He was exiled there. He wasn't without purpose. God, of course, revealed Revelation. These are the witnesses to the resurrected Christ. Now, that's history. We do know that James suffered, according to the book of Acts, he was beheaded by... Uh, Herod. We do have a record of Stephen, who was also a witness, being stoned. So those who gave testimony, those who spoke and gave testimony to the risen Christ and to his lordship, were giving witness. They were giving testimony. There are times where that word is slightly modified and it refers to solemn testimony, sober testimony. The kind of testimony that someone raise your right hand and put your hand in the Bible and swear. There's really an example for us in terms of these apostles and what they were called to and then what they did. 
the apostles were to call others to not only believe the gospel, but to also be witnesses. And you may not have seen the risen Christ, but we have eyewitness testimony in the word of God to those from those who did. We have it in the book of Acts. We have it in what we just read in Acts chapter 10. We, of course, have it in the gospels as they write of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so this task of being witnesses, it was given to those 12, but they were passing along through the preaching of the gospel to others, the truth. And when the truth is believed, we become witnesses. And the subject of our witness is the same. We preach and teach Jesus Christ as Lord. We preach that he is, as Peter said, Lord of all. We preach that he is the holy and the righteous one, that there is none righteous except for this one who was perfectly righteous, and it's his righteousness that is imputed to those who believe up upon him. We certainly preach that he's the Savior, although I would be, I'd miss the emphasis of, of, of Acts if I didn't tell you that those those words, Jesus as Savior, only appear twice, but his title as Lord is throughout the book, the emphasis. Yes, he is Savior, but he is Lord, and he's Lord of all. We preach his death upon the cross, as Peter did in Acts chapter 10, his burial, as Paul did in Acts chapter 13, the proof of his death, his resurrection, which is also a trumpeted truth throughout the book of Acts. This is what we're witnessing to, his judgment of all people. And what Peter said there in Acts chapter 10 is complemented by what Paul said in Athens when he preached that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through one whom he has appointed. And he's furnished proof that he's going to do that because he raised that one from the dead. And there were some who believed that day in Paul's preaching of Jesus. He had to certainly specify with those who came to him and say, this is what God has done. We preach the person, the work of Jesus Christ. That's our solemn testimony. And we call. We call sinners like we are to respond to that message with faith, belief in that truth. And also repentance. That's another theme we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, that there's a call to faith, yes, but also a call to turn from your sins. Jesus died so that you might have forgiveness of sins. It's not right to continue and persist in those sins if you have been saved and forgiven. It's right to turn from them. And of course, there's the promise of forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's throughout the book. Those who responded to the message of the witnesses themselves became witnesses. And as the gospel is preached and a person hears the truth, they become a witness to the truth. They solemnly then testify. And I just ask you, are you a witness? Have you believed the truth? Have you confessed the truth? It's something that we do when even a person comes to salvation. They confess that Jesus is Lord. That means they agree that he is. 
Whether you agree or not, he still is. But when you agree that he is, you're coming to say Jesus is Lord. And then if you do call Jesus as Lord, do you obey what he says? Jesus said to his disciples, go preach the gospel to every creature. He said, make disciples of all the nations. He said to those disciples that they would be witnesses to him, beginning at Jerusalem and then eventually to the rest of the earth. But they were to teach, according to Matthew 28, their disciples, whatever Jesus had commanded. And it is kind of shocking that there would come a point in the understanding of Christian people that that wouldn't be their responsibility. But William Carey had to argue for that in his day. That the apostles were responsible to preach the gospel, but so were those who believed the teaching of the apostles. And so when he argued in his inquiry regarding missions, he was arguing basically for a, for a job. He wanted to preach the gospel, but he's arguing that this is, the, this is what's necessary for all Christians to preach the message of the gospel. Not just for the apostles, but all Christians. And that's certainly true. And it's being a witness is the occupation of every believer, not just a few. Not just those who may seem more comfortable or may seem gifted at it. I like what Roland Allen said. He said evangelism in the New Testament sense is the vocation. That the word means calling. It's the vocation of every believer. And there is therefore something radically wrong when we imply that personal evangelism is the province of those who have the time and or inclination to take special courses and learn special techniques. Now, of course, the scriptures themselves give testimony that there is something called an evangelist, someone who is uniquely gifted in that way. But what does the evangelist do? In part, he evangelizes, he tells others, he also equips people by his example and teaching of how to do it. But all of us are responsible to be evangelists, to tell others. You read about the apostles and the church. Acts chapter 5, verse 42, daily in the temple from house to house, they cease not to preach and teach or teach and preach Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, they're preaching the gospel. They get hauled off in a jail. Acts chapter 5 also tells us that the, the Jerusalem was filled with their teaching. Acts chapter 8, after the apostles, uh, excuse me, after Stephen is martyred and the church is scattered because of that persecution, it says they went everywhere preaching the word. Already made reference to that. Last week mentioned the sermon by Spurgeon, all at it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were all at it? All of us. All of us believing that Jesus is Lord. All of us believing that we have been forgiven for our sins. All of us believing that that's the best news ever. And it is. But all of us then taking that message and declaring that message to those around us. When I say, wouldn't it be wonderful, why isn't it that way? Why is there silence? And you can surely have, oh, this reason, this reason, this reason. I, I know that we make reasons and justifications in our mind, but ultimately, if we're commanded to preach the gospel, if we are to make disciples of the nations, if this is our personal responsibility, then these may be reasons, but they're really excuses. They're excuses. 
read through the book of Acts and we see people who were preaching the gospel. Did they do it perfectly? No. But you can see in the temple, house to house, on trips, in jails, sometimes in public discourse, sometimes in the marketplace. And going everywhere, wherever they went, they're preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. It's an example for us. Part of the reason I want to look at the book of Acts is to help us to see this is this is life as a church. To say an evangelistic church is a bit redundant. To say a praying church is a bit redundant. The church is a praying people. The church is evangelistic. If I don't see myself as, a, as, as being obedient to that is one thing, but that's what the church ought to be. That's what the church is, is described in scripture. And obviously there are times when God draws attention to his people to bring them opportunity uh, through some circumstance. The opportunity is brought to you to bring, to, to give witness to someone. But I think you could also see from the book of Acts that there is there is a going, there is a outreach, there's a looking outside. There is not, there's not what I think is very common in this day is there's not a calling people to come to church. There's not a calling people to come sit in the house of God and hear the message of the gospel here. That's not, you don't find that in the book of Acts. It's it's an outreach. And while there are things and events and circumstances that look like that, really it was a matter of God drawing attention to the apostles in ways through a miracle or some event like Pentecost, and then they're preaching the gospel. But the gospel is to be spread. It is to be given as Christians go. Now, should the gospel be preached when we gather together? Of course it should be. Are there lost people who come in amongst us? Yes, there are. And whether it's children who grow up in a family that knows the Lord and they have yet to receive the Lord, that's one thing. There are sometimes, of course, people walk in and they just want to come to a church and they're not a believer in Jesus Christ. They've never trusted in Christ. Some cases there's a level of knowledge, but not full knowledge. And I would say in the last even few months, especially, there are some who come and there's a level of knowledge, but not full knowledge. There are others sometimes who come and they are already Christians and they're looking for a church. But my point is, is that the gospel is to be reaching out. It's to go out and to be given and spread abroad. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter one. Again, Jesus direction was that it was to be spread geographically. First in the city of the great king, Jerusalem itself. Imagine that. The king of kings from his own city is telling, go preach the gospel. Go preach the news that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there he is. He says, you'll be witnesses both in, verse 8, Jerusalem. That city. And if you were to just look at what happens at Jerusalem in the first few chapters, Jerusalem is turned upside down. Not only on the day of Pentecost, as he sent the Lord Jesus sent the spirit, look at the end of that day. As Luke kind of gives a progress report. 
Look at verse 46 and 47. After these 3,000 souls come to Christ, verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it wasn't just the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. It was a day by day. The message is spreading. The witnesses are telling people, people are coming to Christ. Yes, 3,000. And if we think about chapter one, 120, because there were 120 gathered in that upper room. If you just try to do the math and it's 3,120, and then you account for day by day, the Lord is saving people, saving people, saving people. In chapter three, there's a man who's never walked. And he's healed, and then suddenly he's re, uh, he's he's leaping, praising God. Peter preaches the gospel, and as he preaches the gospel to the crowd there, look at chapter four. Who those of uh, who were there who heard Peter's message and believed? It says, verse four, but many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So a massive crowd had gathered and seen this man who'd never walked, who's leaping, and there has to be an explanation. What's the explanation? It's none other than Jesus Christ. In his name, this man has been healed. And then Peter preaches the gospel, and more people believe. Thousands are now believing. Talk about church growth within such a short time. Turn over to chapter 6. You could say there's some opposition both in terms of the public officials, the Sanhedrin. There's opposition when Ananias and Sapphira attempt to deceive everyone and God takes their life. But as the story goes on and the apostles are persecuted and there's this bit of opposition, look at chapter 6. And down in verse 7, this is after the deacons are chosen. It says in verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And that's when Stephen starts to get the limelight and then he's taken and then he is stoned and if you turn over to chapter 8 again what happens in chapter 8 is what seemed to be opposition that might stop the witness look at verse 1 Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles you shall be witnesses or my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. So what's taking place? Jesus, of course, told them that they would be. But now through persecution in God's providence, that's what's happening. The witness is spreading. And as it spreads, notice they bury Stephen, verse 2. Saul is now persecuting uh, intensely, verse 3, but verse 4 says, therefore, those 
who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So it's Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And as you see the story unfold, there's some more details. You can see Philip in Samaria in chapter 8 as he goes and preaches the gospel there. If you think about Samaria, not only the city, but I think when Jesus was saying in Samaria, he was talking about the region. And there were cities of Samaria. You think the gospel's already been preached in Samaria? Yeah, remember Jesus met the woman at the well at Sychar in Samaria. He preached the gospel. And then after he preached to her, he preached to others. And there were those who believed in Jesus. And so there was that that had already happened prior to Philip's coming. And then Philip starts to preach the gospel. And Philip preaches, look down in verse 25 of chapter 8. After Philip preaches the gospel and some, many are saved, it says in verse 25, so when they, that is the apostles who came to see what had taken place, when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So what began and the ministry of Christ and ministry to the Samaritans continued through Philip. And now the apostles are in on preaching the gospel to Samaria. So I'm just, just think about God's providence here and, and what Christ said. You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Well, you might say, well, what about Judea? Well, if you keep on reading through the book of Acts, you see that even in Judea, there are Christians, there are churches, there are people who, when that scattering took place and everybody goes everywhere preaching the word, the news and the witness is spreading. Turn over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, most notably, is Paul's conversion, his beginning to preach Christ. Eventually, his return to Tarsus, where he was from, and when he returned to Tarsus as a Christian, now, believer in Christ, Look at verse 31. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So now it's Judea and Jesus had not mentioned Galilee, but that's in the north. Samaria is in the north. The gospel is being spread. The witnesses are witnessing. The church is growing. And as you read through the book of Acts, you see that Luke sometimes is just trying to capture briefly a statement. He's not trying to give numbers. He's just saying, here's what God is doing, and it's increasing. It's increasing. There's another one in chapter 12. Turn over to chapter 12. Back at Jerusalem, James is taken. He's executed. Peter is taken, but an angel comes and releases him. Herod, the one who had put James in jail in the first place and had him executed after Peter's release, perhaps it was embarrassment he left, was making a speech because of his arrogance and pride, did not give the glory to God when someone cried out a word of praise to him. 
verse 23, it says immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But verse 24, the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. So whether Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now Galilee, even Caesarea where Cornelius was, the gospel is being proclaimed. It's going forward. Turn over to chapter 16. Hang with me. I know we've gone to a number of passages. We're just looking at the progress of the gospel. Paul's missionary journey, the gospel spreads back in chapters 13 and 14. Again, a second missionary journey. He's taking verse 5 of this chapter as he has been to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Cyprus. Verse 5 says, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Turn over to chapter 19. Paul, in his journeys, takes a third missionary journey. Chapter 19, verse 8, it says he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. This is in Ephesus. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years. Notice this. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, what's the link? Because it looks like Paul is going and he's now just in this one place, school of Tyrannus. The gospel has been spread, but now because of the opposition, Paul turns aside and goes to this school of Tyrannus or the hall of Tyrannus, as sometimes it's called, and he's teaching there. And as he teaches for two years, Paul is there, but it says the word spread throughout all Asia. What's taking place? It's called witnesses. It's called people who are taking in the teaching. And as they take in the teaching, they receive not only God's word, but instruction. They themselves are going out and proclaiming the, the, the good news. Notice what it says, so that all who lived in Asia, this whole region, heard the word of the Lord. Read through the book of Revelation. All those churches listed in chapters 2 and 3, all those churches, they're just representative of the many, many churches there were. Why were they there? Because of the witnesses. It wasn't all the work of the apostle Paul. Paul was used by God, and there was progress through his personal ministry. Sometimes the focus tends to be on Paul and Peter as you go through this book. But obviously, obviously, it's Paul and Peter and the, all the apostles, but also all the disciples and all the churches where the gospel is spreading. There's a map that someone made one time. And basically what it does was it shows the Mediterranean region and all of the churches that are referenced where there are disciples in the New Testament. And if you, obviously, if you look at uh, 
at a certain point in the first century prior to the apostles going. This is prior to Acts 1.8 being fulfilled. It's empty. Okay, it's empty. This, In other words, there may be Jews there who have the scriptures, but in terms of the witness to Jesus Christ, it's not there yet. It's empty. But then by about 75, 80 AD, there are churches all over the place. How did that happen? Now, I've been saying the witnesses, the witnesses, the witnesses, and it is the witnesses. God uses people to spread the witness. It is his word that brings new life. And there's something that happened before all of that activity and all of that action. You know what God did before all of that? Remember the day of Pentecost? Remember all those people who were listening to the people speaking in tongues? And it lists out all of those different nations. It says there were men there from every nation under heaven. And that's the day that Jesus poured out his spirit upon the witnesses. And that's the day that 3,000 souls come to Christ. Of that crowd, that crowd, not there because their home is in Jerusalem, but there because Pentecost is being celebrated. No, they live in Arabia or Crete or Cyprus or somewhere else. And that's the day that God pours out the spirit and Peter preaches the gospel. And now here these Jews hearing the gospel, hearing of Jesus, the Messiah, go back to their place, go back to their home, go back to their synagogue with the news of a Messiah. So is it the witnesses? Yes. Who's empowering the witnesses? The Holy Spirit is. Who's in charge of all this? God is. Do you want to be a part of that? In, in this generation, in this place, in this church, do you want to be a part of that? It's a wonderful thing to be a part of that. Christ said, I will build my church. He is doing it. Are you a part of it? If you call yourself a believer, this is obedience. One writer counted over 60 separate examples of either public or private witnessing in Acts, which tells us that inspired church history indicates the church is a body of people whose main activity is witnessing. It's witnessing. Is fellowship good? Yes. Is listening to teaching good? Yes, and right, and helpful, and necessary. But what are we doing with it? If all you ever do is take in and take in and take in and you never give out, I just ask you, where is faith there? Where is faith? Faith not only confesses Jesus as Lord, but faith preaches, faith proclaims. And I'm not saying you necessarily have to mimic or imitate people in the world who are preaching in ways that draw attention to themselves. No. The witness that we have is sometimes across the neighborhood, I mean, the, the backyard fence. Sometimes it's in our home as we have opportunity to speak to other people. But in the life of a Christian, it is there. One writer said, his name is Lionel Windsor, a little booklet called Gospel Speech. He said, gospel speech is not optional, an optional extra for Christians. 
Salvation comes through a spoken message about a specific person. In God's grace, we are saved through having this message in our hearts and in our mouths. In fact, in a very real sense, we become a Christian by speaking the gospel. That is, we hear the message that Jesus is Lord and all it entails, and we accept that this message is true, and we confess it. At the very least, this means acknowledging it before God himself, admitting through prayer that Jesus is indeed Lord, and it's not a great leap to confess this message, Jesus is Lord, to other people. In fact, what are you doing when you are baptized? If you've been saved and you follow the Lord in believers' baptism, you're confessing Jesus as Lord, that you're following him. You're, you're evangelizing. And so he says, so actually a Christian who prefers not to speak the gospel is a contradiction in terms. Gospel speech is, in fact, at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. Now, I can hear all that, and I can think, I am so guilty. I am so guilty of being silent. I'm so guilty of not preaching the gospel. And yes, we are, aren't we? I, I don't want to be just motivated, though, by the guilt of my own sin. This is a privilege that God has given to me. He calls me an ambassador, and I'm a witness. I give testimony to what I know and believe. You could say, to a certain extent, that may be the issue after all. If you don't believe it, you wouldn't tell people. If you don't believe it, you wouldn't tell people. Now, your faith may need to be encouraged, and even today, I hope your faith is encouraged in the progress of the gospel, the message of the gospel. I hope your faith is encouraged in the truth that Jesus is Lord, that he's given you this commandment, given you this privilege, and that through your message, through your preaching that message, and your witnessing to that message, that people could find a way to eternal life, the forgiveness of their sins, their eternal destiny from a place in eternal lake of fire to heaven forever with God. Yes, that's the difference. Are you a witness? God's people are witnesses. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have, by your grace, saved us, called us, but Lord, also given us the privilege of being ambassadors, being witnesses, to have the ministry of reconciliation, to be entrusted with the good news. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be heralds to proclaim it to those around us. Perhaps even as we spend time this morning, there are people that we know who need to hear the gospel from us. And there'll be opportunities we trust even this week to speak the gospel, to tell others Jesus is Lord, to tell of his salvation, that there is forgiveness of sins for those who put their trust in him. Oh Lord, help us not to shrink back but help us to proclaim faithfully the good news. 
Help us, Lord, to lose our attraction for this world and what it has and remember that eternal values, eternal things are the things that will really matter. The souls of men and women and children are going to live somewhere forever. And so we pray that you'd help us to be earnest about our witness as Christians. And Lord, we pray if there's someone here today who has not yet believed, they've not yet accepted the testimony of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ. They've not accepted the testimony of your word. They've refused in some cases to believe the truth. Lord, we pray that today would be a day where they turn from their sin of unbelief and put their trust in Christ and confess him as Lord and find forgiveness of sins in his name. We ask, Lord, for your grace and your help, your saving work in those lives. And for all of us, Lord, we pray that you change us. Make us more like Christ who went everywhere preaching the gospel, taught his disciples to, sent them to. Help us to see ourselves as your servants, those who proclaim the good news ourselves. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.